Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Today we are talking with Luis Guerra, a legal advocate and the Strategic Capacity Officer with the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, also known as CLINIC. Thanks so much for being with us, Luis. Welcome to the show. Will you tell us about your experience working in immigration? Yeah, so I started as a student advocate, being interested in immigration issues, being an immigrant myself, born in Mexico and raised on the border. I kind of have always wanted to just learn more about um, the legal processes and, and different policies internally that affect immigrants. So I've done work in Oregon with the statewide immigrant rights organization on the policy end, statewide and nationally. And then I've also done a lot of work in the intersection between labor and immigration with, in relation, uh, when it comes to farm workers. So I've worked with the United Farm Workers Foundation in California. And now I work with Clinic, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, where I do a variety of projects, but one of them is focused on helping provide legal assistance to asylum seekers at our southern border. In this episode, I want to talk specifically about the U.S.-Mexico border. Would you describe for us, um, using your experience, and tell us what the border is like and maybe how it has changed over time that you've seen? Yeah, like so like I mentioned, I, I was born uh, about half a mile south of the border and raised a couple miles north of the border. So the border has been part of my upbringing and my almost everyday life. Um, and I will say that the border looks very different because it's so vast and it stretches from east to west, right? So we're talking about thousands of miles. Um, and it doesn't look exactly the same in all areas. And in some areas, you'll have the border wall, which is could be corroborated like metal, sheet metal um, that just divides the U.S. and Mexico. In other places, it could be some of like the newer walls that have been built or like almost like bar, steel bars that you can kind of see through. Um, and, and it really, in some places there is no wall at all. And usually in these areas, you're talking about really, really remote areas, so treacherous areas out in deserts. Uh, so essentially the way that the border has evolved is that it's uh, been focused more and more on enforcement. So the wall uh, in a sense keeps going it becomes fortified, I guess, out in pushing communities that are trying to enter the U.S. into more of the dangerous areas out in deserts and isolated areas. Um, so that's kind of a picture of what, what you, if you've never been down to the border, that's kind of how you can kind of visualize how it's marked. So is it, it's fairly obvious where the walls are, what where Mexico ends and the U.S. begins or vice versa. In between, though, is it very obvious where people would be crossing? And then where should people be crossing? 
So the more remote you get and outside of urban areas or big cities like San Diego or Tucson or El Paso, um, the less that it will be obvious. But in, in going into these big, big urban centers, it's very, very obvious. I mean, going south, if you're, you, it's very common for people to accidentally end up in Mexico. Uh, a very famous freeway here in California is I-5. You're going south on I-5 and there are warning signs. You're about to leave the country, last exit, and people miss it. And so it's possible to accidentally end up in Mexico. However, if you're paying close attention, that shouldn't happen. But um, they, they look, um, imagine like a toll booth. Um, in San Diego, the toll, there's like up to 20 to 30 toll booths next to each other. So you have these huge um, sections of, of road that people line up in in their cars to try to get into the US. Um, and, and likewise going south, but going south, the, the process is much faster. So cars usually don't pile up or back up, but going north, it's very common for us at the border to like, if we're gonna plan a trip across the border to plan our trip around what time is the border gonna close? Some, we call these ports of entries. Some ports of entries have actually business hours. It's possible that you can get stuck in these lines and actually not make it across and have to drive to a nearby one that's open 24 hours. So there's there's a lot at play and um, they're like their mini economies, uh, these, these border towns that surround um, particularly going north, you'll have a lot of folks that have built businesses as you're waiting in your car for hours at a time to try to cross north. You might have vendors give, offering you food, uh, pharmacies offering drugs, alcohol, you name it. Um, you can, it's a one-stop shop just trying to go through this process. That's interesting. You mentioned you could be in your car for hours. What if, can you get across by foot through these ports of entry? Yeah, so there are pedestrian ports of entries. They would be similar if you've never been to the border, similar to your experience maybe going in through an airport. Um, if, you're, if you're walking by foot, that could also be hours. Um, it, it really varies. Um, it's not uncommon to just plan out a, an hour, a couple hours if you're gonna cross the border at all, regardless if it's by foot or by vehicle. Anytime you cross by foot, uh, you will, or by car, essentially what you're waiting for is to speak to an immigration officer. And this immigration officer is conducting a mini interview with the individual that's coming into the country or anyone else in that vehicle or anyone else in your party, asking questions like, what were you doing in Mexico? What are you bringing into the country? and verifying your documentation that you are presenting to that they're double checking to see if you actually have permission to enter. Before we move on from that, can you give us a sense of how many ports of entry there are? Do you know? I don't know the, the number off the top of my head of every single port of entry, um, but major urban centers, typically, it's not a common to have up to like three or four ports of entries. Um, for example, San Diego, where I live, um, there are two ports of entries that 
intersect San Diego Tijuana and one that intersects San Diego Tecate, a smaller uh, town that's more inland. So um, you, you, you typically have at least one that goes into a major city, but there could be miles for miles of stretch at a time that have no ports of entries. Um, in, and they're usually tied to uh, an urban center. There are some ports of entries that have been created more for like commerce. Another port of entry that actually exists in San Diego is one that's connected to the Tijuana International Airport. So that um, that's like a bridge that's exclusively for people traveling in and out of that airport. Who guards the border for the U.S.? Is it just immigration officers or multiple offices? So the uh, Department of Homeland Security is, uh, is, is, is in charge of our borders and the agency within that that's, that actually that you would actually interact with would be CBP, um, which stands for Customs and Border Protection. And um, so CBP are usually the immigration officials that you would interact not only at the southern border, but also if you're coming in into, in, into an airport internationally, uh, the, they'll also be there. There are CBP officials um, basically in the majority of our country where there's a large population because you see them all along not only the southern border and northern border, but also our coasts and, and airports. So this is an agency that's quite large um, and and is in charge with um, ensuring that folks who come to the country have permission to come into the country and are also looking for contraband there, things as silly as fruits and vegetables that aren't allowed into the country um, that can actually get you into a lot of trouble depending on who you are. If, for example, you bring an avocado across the border and you're, you weren't supposed to, um, to, to drugs, of course, uh, that they're trying to prevent uh, from coming into the country. So say you're, you get to a port of entry, what types of documents are acceptable in order to pass through? So you mentioned you could just kind of drive accidentally south. Um, so it seems like you might not need anything to pass south, but correct me if I'm wrong, but then also when you're coming back into the U.S., what is that process like? What, what do you need to show in order to get through? In practice, is different what is official. So officially, you'll see guidance about everyone needing to have a passport, or if it's a minor, they have to have their birth certificate. Uh, but once again, these are like mini interviews. Um, I've, I've always, it's like a joke between my friends that the lighter skin you are and the better English you are, the less requirements there'll be for you. Um, so in, in practice, it's best practice to have your passport and be current. Other folks who aren't U.S. citizens or, um, might be from another country, then they would need, to uh, have a visa approved, uh, to be able to come. And that visa can be for different purposes. It could be for, um, am I coming in as a tourist? Am I coming in? for work purposes and all of those have their own processes. Some are harder than others to obtain, um, but there are many folks who have, will never get, unfortunately, the opportunity to come even to visit family members 
because they're not able to meet the requirements for even getting a tourist visa. That is a good picture, I think. I hope that we can all kind of see what the border would be like, kind of how the process of going through. And so I want to kind of get into the meat of the issue, which is for immigrants who arrive at the southern border, can you kind of show us or explain to us a detail of the types of communities that are arriving at the southern border, um, maybe who, who aren't citizens, and what would the potential outcomes be for an individual that attempts to enter the U.S.? Sure. So the, the majority of the issue that's being politicized um, by, by many folks at the southern border is specifically to folks who are coming to seek asylum uh, in the U.S., and the, the community that gets uh, focused on the most are folks from Central American countries, um, like El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. However, in the last two years or so that I've been doing work in Mexico at, in these border towns, um, our legal services projects have encountered individuals from close to 60 different countries. Um, and these are individuals uh, literally from every corner of the world that end up in our southern border trying to enter the U.S. Um, to, to seek asylum or reconnect with family members. Um, not everyone that arrives at the southern border fully understands what asylum is. Many people... I usually describe asylum being so complex that when people ask me to describe how to go through the asylum process, I say, I'm waiting. This would be compared to describing how to cure cancer. So it's, asylum in itself is very, very complex. And, and yet we are challenged with the task of trying to like explain these processes in legal language to individuals that maybe have um, um, haven't had the privilege to to go to school, um, maybe speak indigenous languages or or maybe um, they they just didn't really fully know what they were arriving for. All they know is that they're trying to keep their families safe. So you'll you'll see, a wide array of folks arriving at the southern border. Uh, the majority of who are trying to find a safe or better living condition for their families. So what happens when they get to the border and maybe they understand, maybe they don't, and they say that they want asylum, but they don't have documentation? What happens? What is what is CBP's response? Is there sort of a, a process that happens? Are there any number of options that could occur as simply as you can sort of walk us through what potentially could happen to those people. Yeah. Um, thank you for the question. There are many, many different outcomes that I explained to an individual who, who asked me if I want to seek asylum in the U S what will happen to me and my family? So the, the first one is this concept of metering. Um, many people can't even approach the gate where you're talking to an officer because um, there have been informal lists 
created where folks have to sign up and get a number and wait months at a time until their number comes up um, to be allowed to go to the gate. If, if people try to go to the gate and present themselves and, and just ask for information or ask about how to go into the process, uh, they could be faced with repercussions um, such as, for example, um, a, a woman that we talked to, our team talked to last week, um, after asking about the process, was she described it as tear gassed and handcuffed along with her three children and, and pushed back into Mexico. Um, so it's really, really difficult just to even speak to an officer. Um, so some people decide to put their names on these lists and wait out months and kind of almost be escorted up to the gate so that they can talk to an officer. So that, that, that one's called, that outcome is metering and that's just to get into the door. Let's say that you're already in the door. Some people actually just don't have the ability to wait. So they might enter outside of an official port of entry and, and uh, be talking to an officer in the middle of the desert or in the mountains or something and saying, I'm afraid to go back to my home country. So then they can get, they'll be processed at that point by, in, by CBP. And one other outcome after you're once inside the US, because you have to be inside the US to start a process, um, you could be uh, put in a detention center along with your family. Um, it's possible that it, you're put in different detention centers. Your spouse gets sent to a detention center with one member of your family and you get sent to a different detention center across the country. You have no clue which this detention center you're gonna be sent to. And the first week or so is just trying to orient yourself and trying to figure out how to re-communicate with your family members. So um, that option is detention. Um, the other possibilities that we're seeing are, there are several programs where they're doing expedited interviews by immigration officials at the borders, which folks don't have access to a lawyer or anything during this process, but it's possible that within 10 days, you could have already gone through some sort of interview process that wasn't fully explained to you or you didn't fully understand, or maybe you weren't offered an interpreter, so it was all conducted in English and you don't know any English. Um, and in that possibility, you could just be deported back to your home country really quickly. You never saw a judge or anything or present were given the opportunity to present evidence. So that's another bucket of people. There's a new program that started this year um, where uh, you're random, almost all of these, there really is no like, justification for why you end up in one or versus the other, we really don't know. But one other possibility is you could just be put on an airplane sent back to Central America um, to a different country that's not your own. So let's say you're from El Salvador, you could find yourself in Guatemala um, on an, going on a plane to Guatemala and you were told that Guatemala will let you apply for asylum. And once you get there, there's no process or support for you. Um, 
another possibility is these are like a few, but um, it, it, it also is a possibility are individuals that are allowed to come in and reconnect with their family or, or, or a sponsor is the term that gets used as someone that's willing to take them in into their home. And so those individuals will be subject to um, immigration check-ins and they might have an ankle monitor put on them. And um, I've seen pregnant women get ankle monitors and, and they have to like be checking in and going to their courts, but they get, to, they, they will do the process from wherever it is that they're being housed or whoever takes them in. And um, the program that I've been doing most work on is known as Migrant Protection Protocols. The acronym that gets used is MPP. And the other name that it's used more colloquially is Remain in Mexico. And so those individuals are uh, sent back to Mexico and are told to wait their court dates in Mexico and are only allowed to come into the U.S. on the dates that they have court hearings. So there's many, many options ranging from just being in limbo and waiting, being detained and potentially separated from your family and um, being sent to Central America or being told to wait in Mexico and uh, to do your case. Thank you. That it's, it's overwhelming to hear sort of how haphazardly it sounds like things that really affect people's lives are being um, implemented. Is this unique because of the coronavirus? Have things changed since COVID? Many of the things that I've described um, are unique to uh, Trump's administration. They were efforts to deter more folks and make it much harder to gain asylum. Um, but other things have existed for many, many years, like detention and um, metering is not new to this administration. People have been put on these lists in, pre in the Obama administration. The newest thing under, under the pandemic is um, that basically all the options that I just laid out are on pause and the border is essentially closed. So the federal government stance is that they're following CDC guidelines and that guideline is telling them their interpretation of it is no essential travel and they're clumping in uh, only essential travel, I apologize, and they're clumping in uh, people fleeing for their lives as non-essential. So if you try to cross the border or present yourself at a port of entry today during the pandemic, you will just be turned back. You will not be processed really. Some people have reported they get fingerprinted. I, get, I believe that's just to see if they're wanted somewhere. Um, but they're not really processed by Mexican government, not really processed by the U.S. government. They're just turned back. Um, so then you have these people in limbo that neither government, neither the U.S. or Mexican government really has done anything with. And we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see um, when these CDC guidelines 
change or when the government decides to use a different interpretation. Um, many of us in the advocacy realm for immigrants don't, don't think that this should apply, that people who are fleeing for their lives, that these are um, life and death decisions that are being made um, should be taken into consideration. Could you tell us as we end this specific episode, what is one one of, I'm sure, the many policy changes that you think would have a positive impact in this environment? There are so many things that I wish would be different. The one thing that I wish would be different uh, in the near future would be um, moving us towards actual due process. I I don't want to continue to live in a system where you win your case just because you outsurvive the obstacles and challenges before you, but rather you win your case because the merits of your case uh, were strong and they met the, the law. So I think to get us there, people need a fighting chance. And I think everyone needs representation. One thing that we didn't get to talk to in too much detail during this interview is all of these legal processes happen without an attorney. People aren't afforded an attorney. Everyone has the right to an attorney, but of course, most people can't afford one. Um, so if we mimicked our criminal justice system um, closer to a universal representation model where everyone's afforded an attorney and actually has a fighting chance, someone that understands these intricacies and understands English and is able to fill out an application in English, I think it would be a huge step for um, gaining some sort of equal balance for this system. Thank you so much, Luis, for sharing your experience and insights with us about this very important issue and um, an issue that affects many people's lives. Where can people learn more about you and or your organization? There are many, many organizations doing amazing work at the border. If you want to learn more about our organization, um, our organization is Catholic Legal Immigration Network, and our website is cliniclegal.org. Um, and this particular project that I talked about today is called the Estamos Unidos Project. It's based out of Ciudad Juarez, across from El Paso, and there's different ways to get involved. Thank you again, Luis. We'll keep talking immigration. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration. Immigration.